Hey folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. Well, we just wanted you to know that support for risk comes from audible.com. They are, of course, a provider of digital audiobooks and more. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. With more than 100,000 downloadable titles, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals, you're going to find what you're looking for. Risk listeners might enjoy Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantle. And don't forget, lots of risk contributors have content on Audible as well. For a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership, go to audiblepodcast.com slash risk. That's audiblepodcast.com slash risk. We also want to remind you that postage meter companies, they used to have the monopoly on printing postage. They could charge you an arm and a leg to print postage from your own office, but those days are over. Now you can use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you get all the benefits of a postage meter, but at a fraction of the cost. All you need is your computer, printer, and Stamps.com to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package, any class of mail. Plus, you'll never have to step foot in a crowded post office again. Everything you do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. It's so convenient. We use Stamps.com for Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. So right now, you can use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Extra Risk, where we give you just a little bit more of the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is No Request behind me now. Well, I'll tell you, folks, we are gearing up. We are gearing up for the 2013 Max Fun Drive. It's just around the corner. Our network, Maximum Fun, is putting together a two-week-long brouhaha is what it is. We're going to be giving away all sorts of prizes and gifts, including all kinds of bonus episodes, including the all-star episodes of Risk to people who are becoming monthly members starting April 1st. Now, maybe you're already a monthly member, or maybe you've never thought about donating before. Either way, you got to tune in. Starting April 1st, we're going to be running some of our best shows ever. Not just Risk, all the Maximum Fun shows. A two-week-long celebration. We want you to be a part of it, and we want you to help keep Risk running by earmarking us in your donations you make during those two weeks. 
Letting Maximum Fun know that risk is a reason you want to help keep Maximum Fun going strong. Now, on today's episode, we're going to feature a story from a lovely man, New York storyteller Mr. Robert Hurst. I first heard Robert tell this story at David Crabb and Cami Climaco's show, Ask Me, right here in New York. And right after the show ended, I ran up to David and asked him, hey, can you record and edit that story that Robert just told, a version of it? And I think both of them did a lovely job. So without further ado, here is Robert Hurst with a story we call The Roof is on Fire. You might call it a phobia, a, 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 a fear. I would say it was a medically reasoned fear, but I, I had developed this fear that my leg was going to fall off. I know that maybe sound crazy, like a, a phobia, but it was very real. It, it all kind of stemmed out of the fact that uh, I had a, had a hip replacement recently, and I was very concerned about doing any little thing that might jar, might might upset the, the joint because it would fall apart. I, I remember I was in the doctor and I was fairly young. I was 40 years old. And he, he, he looks at my x-ray and goes, uh, and he's Russian. He goes, Mr. Hurst, you have hip of an 80-year-old man. An 80-year-old man, that's not not good. And he says, you're going to have to have a hip replacement. So I do that. And I, I notice he has the the model of the the hip in front of me. And so I'm, I'm, I'm playing around with it. And it just comes apart in my hand. And I'm, I, I kind of laugh. I, I, I broke your, your model, Doc. And he goes, uh, it is uh, not broken. Uh, I go, but what holds it together? Uh, this, I mean, this is just a model. The real one won't just pop apart. And he goes, no, that is the real one. But what holds it together? You, you hold it together, your muscles, your body, it holds it together. And I was freaking out. I was responsible for holding me together. That's the way your your hip works. And I thought, oh, crap. And that's allowed this kind of fear to fall into my head that if I'm bent too far over or moved too much this way, or if I jumped or, or tripped or something, it would just pop off and my leg would flop around like some boneless chicken. And so in this uh, kind of hysteria and, and, and panic mode, I, and I was on disability from work for like three or four months as recuperating, doing rehab and all of this, my girlfriend had gotten this call from her friends in San Francisco that they were all going to go to Burning Man. And I thought, yes, that's what I need. I need to go to Burning Man. Really not fully considering my hip. Would I be ready in the, the three more months to, to actually walk around in the, the desert and, and party the way I wanted to party? Needless to say, we go to Burning Man. And I'm already starting to panic because there are thousands and thousands of people uh, close to 50,000 people the 
circumference of Burning Man, I, th- I think it's about 10 miles, and these people just arrive out of nowhere, and a city develops. And I'm really excited, because Margot's friends are, are theater people, and I always, you know, I'm a theater geek from, from high school, and they're also, and she said, now be aware, they're, they're gay, but the, the whole camp is gay. And I thought, well, that's fine. I don't, I don't have any problem with it. That's, that's great. And, and so we, we get there and we meet her friends, Charlie and Mark, and they tell me that the camp's name is the Little Crack Whores. And of course, little spelled the, the cute way, L apostrophe I-L. And the, the, the logo is kind of like the copper tone girl, but this is more of an androgynous figure. And you realize that the, the crack, it's not, uh, you know, it's not drugs, it's, it, it's ass. Uh, and these are a bunch of guys that are, are really having a lot of fun in the desert. We, we get our tent set up, and we're outside of the, the main tent, and the main tent is amazing. One of the guys, this older gentleman, was an architect, and he'd gotten these, I don't even know quite what they are. They're kind of like billboard, uh, tarp kind of things, and, and I, they, they weren't Abercrombie and Fitch, but they were something like that, so they were all these like male torsos that are just muscled and no fat. And the tent itself looked like something out of the Arabian Nights, uh, uh, the Casbah kind of a thing. And so inside this giant tent, there were all the, everybody's little tents. And then the hangers on, which was me and my, my girlfriend, were on the outside. And I'm very excited. I'm really kind of nervous because my hip doesn't feel right. And what's also embarrassing is that I can't really even put on my shoes and socks. And so my girlfriend has to put them on for me. So it's like kind of the level that I'm, I'm at, but I'm excited. We go and we start meeting people and everyone is nice, but in that kind of nice way, you know, it's like I said, Oh, they think I'm Margot's straight boyfriend and we got to be, you know, watch our P's and Q's around. And you know, what's who let the straight guy in here. And I said, this, this can't stand. And so, was the the next day they had a big party, a little crack whore party, and uh, Margot, my girlfriend, uh, decided that she was going to had packed me some costumes. <laughs> and so I, I forget what it was, but it was something stupid, was like husky girl, or, or you know. And so I had this little blue jean skirt and a yellow kind of frilly chemise that was kind of off the shoulder, <laughs> and it, it it allowed a little midriff or muffin top in in my case, and. I thought, you know, heck, I'm going to do this. And so we, I get dressed up, and my hair was kind of long at the time. So I got us this flowery headband. I put on uh, makeup, and and I'm, I'm all excited to get out and show the guys that I'm, you know, one of the girls. And I realized that the, the jean short a skirt is too short, and that if I lift up, my, my stuff, as it were, kind of would – peek out like peekaboo hello and I thought, oh my god my stuff is like just out and there i was like i know i wanted to be a crack whore but how much of a crack whore did i want to be i know that maybe that's not the most politically correct but you know hey when in rome so i thought you know i'm gonna be proud hold my shoulders back and if the stuff is is peekabooing out then let it peekaboo and they 
just loved it. And they were like, oh my God. And I forget, they called me Carla, I think, for a while. And it was it was great. Now I was one of the guys or one of the girls or whatever and was kind of accepted. And we had great fun. And and Charlie and Mark, uh, Margot's uh, best friends, I got along fabulously with them. They, they were, and I, it's so rare in, in life that you meet people where you just feel instantly at home and Charlie's uh, from the South. He's originally from Kentucky, and he's about my age. Mark's a, a little younger, and he's from Trinidad. And they both look famous. I don't know how to put it. Uh, Mark looks like he could be uh, like the love child of Mick Jagger and David Bowie. And I was, I was telling Mark that I just, I want to go dance. And so he slips me some ecstasy, and I'd never done ecstasy before, which I highly recommend because I was so touchable, so felt so good to be in my own skin. And after being so worried about my leg falling off, it was nice to not have to worry about that. And so we would go out dancing, and I got to talk to Charlie, and he was also from the the South, and so we really commiserated on living these awful southern childhoods and i told him about my dad my dad was such a a, a horror show a, just a horrible uh, person who I, I i now i look back i think i'm pretty sure he thought i was gay because i loved to dance and he would say fun things like turn off that goddamn nigger music i don't want no son of mine flouncing around like no goddamn faggot and i'm i'm telling charlie this who grew up in kentucky and it's like we understood and he still got that 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 little bit of an accent and it just felt like home and he was telling me about how his brother uh would always tease him calling him charles nelson riley <laughs> and it was great and he kept on mentioning and i remember being astounded because art was popping up everywhere in Burning Man. Every empty space, there would be some art. And and not just art, but the people were art. You know, it's like people talk about being in uh, New York, that you can really be yourself, but it's more of an apathetic because nobody cares. But when I was there, I felt like not so much people cared, but everybody was so glad that you were being a performer, they didn't want you to sit on the sidelines. And if you dressed in some crazy outfit or or whatever, you would get applause. People would come up and give you some water or a, a treat or drugs, you know, if you're if you're very lucky. So we're getting along fabulously, and and Charlie says we we got to go to the temple. He's been talking about this temple. We got to go to the temple, but it's at the way way end and the very edge of the whole city, and so. We make a day of it. We're going to go out. We get on our bicycles and we bicycle out and we get to the temple. And I was told that it was exceptionally beautiful this year. It was 2009 and nothing really prepared me for the immensity of it. It was about four stories high and it was made out of reclaimed wood. You would think if by looking at it that it was marble, but it was just wood that had been thrown out and discarded. The symbolism of that was so profound to me, this, this trash to treasure. And the structure was built in the shape of a lotus. 
Uh, in in uh, Buddhism, the lotus is a flower, uh, symbolic of the vagina, of being open to accepting bliss in your life. And, and Charlie's telling me all about this and about the Vajra, which is the lightning bolt or the penis, and the penis meets the lotus, and bliss. And I thought, yeah, I want that. We go into the temple, and there are meditation benches all on the, along the outside of the temple. And I, I don't remember whether he told me, but it didn't sink in. When I, when I got inside the temple, it was a memorial for people. Anybody could go in and put up memorials for people that they had lost. So you'd have pictures of children that parents had lost or children who had lost parents or lovers. And, and not just the memorials for those that have passed, but also things that you wanted to let go of. Like uh, there were people who were trying to give up uh, heroin or, or, or drugs, and they had made these little altars about the drugs, how it had taken over their lives and how they wanted to let it go. And one person had even uh, had, had put a leg a uh, picture of their leg that they had lost in an accident, and they were now had to walk with a with crutches with a with a prosthesis, and that just started to overwhelm me. And and the the group, all my friends, we all started to kind of fan out, and it was very somber. I I, I remember I had to, wanted to get to the next level. Like there's four levels of four stories, and there was this big long ramp, and I remember walking up in the middle of it. And I just felt like I was going to fall, like I was going to fall backwards. And I started to panic a little. And all that, that fear about my leg falling off, if I was being put in danger. And as I was trying to like scoot off to the side, which was awkward and uh, humiliating, people just started swarming around me, uh, trying to go, get around me. And I panicked even more. And eventually I got to the, the rail and I remember feeling so... So ashamed, so so heavy, so weighted down with this this fear, and it wasn't just the the the, the leg or that. Now that I, I was different, I was never going to run again. I couldn't cross my legs. I couldn't put on my own shoes, my own socks. But I started thinking that my mother, by the time she would have been my age, she had already been bound in a wheelchair for five or six years. And here I am, feeling sad for myself, throwing a pity party, and I was just so angry. And I kept thinking about all the loss around me, and it just felt like the whole world was kind of darkening or irising out. And then my new friend Mark came back down, and he saw me, and, and I, I tried to smile and kind of wave him off that I was just, you know, needed a moment, but he knew what was going on. And he just, he came, he didn't say anything, and he just... He put his uh, his arm around me, and this gentle, beautiful man, who my father would have hated, showed me kindness and gentleness, and I just lost it. I, and he, he helped me out, helped me down the, the ramp outside to one of the little meditation benches, and we're just sitting there, and just being... And eventually, uh, everybody else comes out, and they see me on, on the bench, and they're concerned. They go, did something happen? And I just tell them, you know, I just got a little overwhelmed. And uh, and Mark says, oh, he'll be okay. And, uh, and then Charlie sits down with me, 
and uh, and I'm still a little uh, shaken. And he holds my hand, and he says, "You know, it's okay. A lot of people. I, I felt the same way when I first went through the temple. And it's all about just letting go, just throwing away all that shit that you just don't need anymore." And he said, "Listen, I want to tell you a very special prayer." to remember because at the end of all of this, the end of uh, burning man, they're going to burn this temple. And I, I remember, I just couldn't believe that they're going to burn it, this beautiful structure. And it was just all going up in flames. And he said, here's what I want you to remember. Very simple phrase. And we can all do it together. And he looked me in the eye, holding my hand. And he said, the roof, the roof. The roof is on fire. We don't need no water. Let the motherfucker burn. Burn, motherfucker, burn. And everyone thought this was the most hysterical thing. And we all stood up. We got on our bicycles and we still kept chanting, the roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. We don't need no water. Let the motherfucker burn. Burn, motherfucker, burn. week folks this is handsome poets behind me now with a song called sky on fire hey if you're in new york city on march 28th come to the pit because risk will be live with jordan carlos ilana glazer and more if you're in los angeles that night march 28th you better get your black (laughs) i meant to say your ass It's a black-ass fight. Whatever color your ass, get it to Nerd Melt on March 28th because Brian Husky and Glenn Wool will be doing the show. And remember, if you love Risk, please spread the word. Tell your friends. Remember, on Twitter and Facebook, we're at Risk Show. On Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison. And there's a whole slew of stuff you can find at Risk show.com or the storystudio.org where we teach storytelling and having said all that all that remains to be said is folks today's the day take a risk we are on this road together. start
you better get your black. <laughs>